For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how does a doctor deal with the end of her patients' lives? Celebrate the love of music with the staff at TUSD's Instrument Repair Shop. Find out what walkers on Tumamock Hill think about how stereotypes impact our community. And Beth Surdit shares advice about proper etiquette with hummingbirds. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The latest Arizona public media documentary, Passing On, premieres on PBS 6 Monday at 9 p.m. It explores end-of-life issues and includes stories from the bedsides of dying people. Dr. Sue Taylor was crucial in providing access to them. She visited the StoryCorps mobile booth when it was in Tucson to talk with the documentary's producer, Tom Clespie, about what it's like to provide comfort to the dying and their families including one death that remains a part of her daily life. What was your first experience with death? Oh, you're going right to the... Yeah, I'm going right to it. Right to the hard stuff. Um, I was a little girl um, in North Idaho. I was raised um, in rural Idaho. And when I was in seventh grade, my uh, brother started getting sick. He was an eighth grader. And he was the um, light of my life. He was really funny, very artistic, um, always made up stories to make our life a lot better because it wasn't a very easy life. But he got sick. He started losing weight. Stomach hurt. And they took him to the doctors, flew him uh, out to the pediatric cancer unit, and um, I think he always knew that he wasn't going to live. And At the very end, they took him out of the ICU because kids weren't allowed in the ICU back then. And so I would get to see him. And he, on the last day of his life, um, he asked me to go get banana popsicles for us, which was my favorite, our favorite thing in the world. I'd been trying to help him as much as I could. And he said goodbye to me, which, you know, isn't very usual for a kid. Reached out for the door handle and... He said goodbye, Susie. And that was my first experience with death. With the experiences that you had with your brother, do you think that has um, given you a a bit of an insight in dealing with some of the patient's families? The doctor that my mother always talked about the most was the doctor that knew the least. He was the intern. And he, he didn't know much about Burkitt's lymphoma, the disease my brother had. But he had such a heart. He was the guy that on the day John was to die, um, he came in and cried. He fell apart. And my mother always talked about that, how much somebody cared and what that signaled that to a mother that 
John's life was important. And there have been moments when I know that um, expressing emotion hasn't been considered professional. But in this field, um, I don't hesitate to show emotions and, and express that empathy. And in training to see that expressed, that that is a beautiful way to share our humanity. Because this is the path we will all tread. You are in those rooms, in the, in the patient's rooms every day. Do you feel, still feel him in those rooms with you when you're there? Um, sometimes when I don't know what to say, I'm in palliative care now, trying to improve end-of-life care. And there are times that are so hard for people. I, I'm there when people have just gotten terrible news, when they are struggling with the disintegration of their future, of their personhood, when it is so overwhelming that it's not knowable what to do. And I wait. Um, but there is something extra that comes with being surrounded by um, those who've passed, who love us and support us. And there is mystery in that. When did you first learn that, or first realize that you could learn so much from somebody passing on? That's a good question, too, because losing John, you know, I was too young to realize I'd learned something. It was a source of such pain for so many years. I'll credit um, a lot of years being a doctor and kind of slowly breaking down that shell of the professionalism and... Um, a lot of patients broke my heart open, and having children um, opens your heart in a new way. That what's um, possible—you don't think it's—you don't think it's possible to love someone so much, but you do. And you know you have to leave them someday. How do you prepare for that? And the time to start isn't the last week of your life. The time to start for that is now. You're in those rooms. How did you, what did you say to those patients that allowed us to come in there with a camera and at, their, at that time in their lives? How, how, how did you talk to them to get us in those rooms? Uh, um, I said thank you to each one of them for opening their hearts and um, sharing with me their stories and said, you know, we're all looking for a way to do this better. And we don't know what it is, but what you're telling me now, I think could help other people. There's something, the way you're able to talk to each other, the way you're able to um, articulate what you're going through, I think you could help other people because it's been so hidden for so long, what really happens at end of life, how we deal with what we understand, what we're hoping for, what we're worried about. We haven't talked about it as a community, as a nation, but your family's able to do that. And if you could just demonstrate that, I think you'd help a lot of people. Well, thank you for asking. 
and thank, thank you for being here. Thank you, Tom. Sue Taylor was interviewed by Arizona Public Media producer Tom Clespy in the StoryCorps mobile booth in Tucson. You can hear more from Dr. Taylor in the documentary Passing On, premiering on PBS 6 Monday at 9 p.m. And you can find more local StoryCorps stories at azpm.org. Tucson Unified School District maintains more than 13,000 musical instruments for students who are learning to play. The district is one of few in the state with an in-house repair shop. Instruments may enter covered in dirt with snaps, strings, and dents, but they often leave as good as new, even after years of service, thanks to the small dedicated staff and one doctor. Mariana Dale introduces us to Ned Bloomfield. I've always wanted, always wanted to play a string instrument. Even when I was a little kid, I used to stretch rubber bands on the bedposts and play a little tune with the stretched rubber bands. A lifetime later, Ned Bloomfield leans over a violin. So it's not in bad shape. Or rather, a violin in pieces. The 85-year-old adjusts pea-sized tuning pegs with a silver instrument. This is a medical tool. Is that? <laughs> yes, it's called the hemostat. I worked with it all, them all my life. It's uh, often used for tying knots. It's uh, used for clamping um, bleeding blood vessels and things like that. We use a lot of, a lot of hemostats in surgery. At the surgery we perform on violins, it works <laughs> there too. The doctor's operating room is a trailer in a parking lot of the Tucson Unified School District's Resource Center. The crowded space holds dozens of instruments in varying states of deconstruction. A stack of bassoon cases brushes the ceiling in the corner. Ah, well, you know what school, school kids will, are very inventive on how to, uh, how to all destruct a violin, really. It's a lot of fun for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just a volunteer. I'm not a regular uh, employee. You probably guessed that from my, uh, my gray hair, right? Ned Bloomfield spent almost 40 years as an obstetrician and gynecologist. I took my uh, residency and internship in Cleveland at a hospital called Mount Sinai Hospital. And... Um, that is no more either. That's been closed. So uh, any of the diplomas that I got there, they're obsolete. But then again, I've become obsolete too. <laughs> he moved to Tucson to escape Cleveland winters and had a private practice until he retired in the late 90s. Was that kind of scary to decide to do something else after having been a doctor for so long? <laughs> Well, you know, of course, every, every career, no matter what it is, has to come to a close at some time. After retirement, there was more time for Ned's hobbies. All of them involved working with his hands in some capacity. There was tennis, model boat building, and music. He'd hosted a chamber music quartet in his living room for many years. G? It's an informal group. No one wears shoes while they play, and they pause midway for tea. You can hear their music throughout the story. They've been working through Mendelssohn's quartets. (laughs) 
To fill his time, Ned started assisting a friend who was a music teacher at TUSD, her students not far from the age when he started playing the violin. He tuned instruments, adjusted postures. Sure, it was helpful, but he thought he could do more. At the end of the semester, she said, well, I gotta send a bunch of instruments in. I'll probably never see these for six months. And I said, why not? And they said, well, there's only one person who's fixing instruments down at the uh, instrument repair center. That suddenly set off a light bulb. Oh boy, fixing something. I love to fix things. <laughs> I've been fixing things all my life. Never saw the inside of, of a violin in all the years I've played. But I saw plenty of insides, and my pedagogue, Sean Randall, taught me everything I know. I do the instrument repair for Tucson Unified School District. We uh, started him on very basic setups of instruments, and over the next few years he got into taking tops off of instruments, repairing cracks, bushing peg holes, doing almost what uh, uh, any luthier would do in a, in a regular violin shop. Now, we'll see how close I am. See, There are a lot of similarities. The similarities are uh, that the patients come in and they're broken a little bit and they need something to fixed. And uh, it's just like the instruments. The instruments come in, they need fixing too. Uh, the only difference is, is that uh, if we have to uh, fix a patient, uh, we don't uh, glue them together and put them on a shelf overnight for the glue to dry, you see. <laughs> when Ned is in the shop, they turn the radio to classical, and they also talk. Our greatest uh, story is that when I first started here, Sean's parents uh, were visiting, and he said, uh, I got this fellow working with me in the uh, music repair shop. That name, and, Ned um, Bloomfield, was familiar to Sean's mom because he had been her doctor. She said, in fact, he delivered you. You delivered Sean? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the story. I went, I went home the very next day and uh, pulled out my birth certificate, and, and lo and behold, there's Ned's signature at the bottom. That's quite a roundabout way of we, we got to know each other again. <laughs> Sean wasn't the only person Ned met a second time when he started volunteering. I've known him in a former life from uh, when I used to be an accompanist for one of the synagogues here in town. Joan Ashcraft is TUSD's fine arts director. And the great thing about Ned, uh, he has no fear. If he needs to go talk to central administration, I mean, he doesn't even check it out with us, of course. He just goes and does that. And it's Joan that tells me Ned has done more than give his time to the repair shop. When the budget ran short a few years ago, he helped raise more than $30,000 from friends and acquaintances. He brings us a lot of joy, and we hope we can return some of that to him. My, my feeling is this. This position, being able to volunteer at a shop like this, have given me a raison d'etre. Do you know what that is? A reason to exist. That's, I think, one of the most important parts uh, of aging that I've found is to continue to be involved in something that you love and contribute to the uh, community in which you live.
For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Mariana Dale. Dimelo, Stories of the Southwest, is a community storytelling project focused on identity and culture. Every week, Sophia Paliza Carr asks a question that you can answer. This week, the Dimelo team goes to the hill, Tumamak Hill, to meet others who are enjoying the mild February weather. Uh, my name is Susan, and it's a good cardio workout. You guys uh, ever feel like that you've been stereotyped by other people? Um. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have, because I'm not a skinny little woman, so people think that I physically can't do things that I can do. So, yeah, I get stereotyped. This is Dimelo, a project where we ask Tucsonans to tell us about identity, culture, and community in and around Tucson. I'm Sofia Palisakiach. And I'm Mariana Dale. And we went up on Tumamak Hill last weekend. You can find our first Dimelo story mailbox there, where you can contribute your story. While we were there, we asked Hillwalkers about our theme for the last two weeks, stereotypes. We asked, do they exist in your community? Which are the most common ones? And how do they affect you? Tumamak Hill itself is a place that defies definition. It's a nature reserve and a research center for the University of Arizona. But for such a natural place, it's also exceedingly human. Artist-in-residence Paul Marocca spends almost every day on the hill. Oh, I've heard, I've heard people in tears, crying, and I've heard people kind of look, sounding like they were breaking up in a conversation. I've heard people like in love, just having these, these really you know, happy conversations. So we thought we'd spark up a few conversations of our own. We started off light and asked about preconceived notions of Tucson. A lot of people think Tucson is like a little dusty trail town yeah. where horses and buggies are going up and down the street. <laughs> I think we're kind of thought of as, as the ugly brother of Phoenix. Everybody always asks me, do you miss the grass? I was like, no, not really. Because <laughs> there's so much green in the yeah. cactus and the palo verdes and mesquite that, yeah, I don't miss it. Tucson has a lot of stereotypes. Um, hippie, liberal. Awesome, um, kind of laid back, chill. I like it a lot. I'm never moving away. Some had answers right away, but some people didn't really know what to make of our question. The stereotypes like labels? Yeah. Oh, at my school, there's no labels. Like either you're well known or you're not known at all. We have been out today asking people whether uh, they think there's any stereotypes in their community. They consider what? Whether they think there's any stereotypes in their community. That's a terrible question. But we did find that some people knew immediately what stereotypes they had heard before. I think there are. Like what? You go well, first. <laughs> for, usually when people think of Tucson, they think of the whole um, border issue, the border patrol. and the, That's true. And a lot of people think that white people or people in general from Arizona are racist. Been in high school here, and if you play for a certain school, they're like, you're ghetto or like, your school sucks compared to like the rich schools. Yeah, I went to Choya right down the street from here. Talking from somebody from this side of town, they're like, oh, Choya, yeah. My friend went there or something. But if you're talking from somebody from the north side you or the east side, they'll be like, oh, Choya, uh, okay, you know. Why do you think that is? Um, just cultural differences, you know. 
and a group of people we met were fighting stereotypes every day in their lives. I'm in a rehab and we, um, we come up here every Saturday to just hike the hill and get a little more exercise than we do regularly. A stereotype for our community is, you know, they think that drug addicts are all, they're always going to be a drug addict, you know? You know, I'm trying to change my life and that doesn't have to go to show that my past is going to define me as a person. I'd like to say that Colton's 100% correct. I support his recovery. But saying he, something he said, which is incorrect, is that he's trying. He's not trying. He's doing the damn thing. And we're having a good time. We're up here. We walk. We stick together. It's a program of recovery. And we don't even look like addicts now. <laughs> you just heard from Susan and Neville, Colton and Katrina, Keith, Julie, Bob, Harmony, Cameron, Jessica and Arlene, and Louise. Thanks to everyone for sharing their thoughts with Dimelo. We want to hear from you. Want to submit your story? Find out more at dimelostories.org. Next week with the upcoming presidential preference election, we'll be asking, what makes you vote? Or why do you choose not to? You tell us. Dimelo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Artist and writer Beth Surtit listens to ravens and has paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. She also knows about proper etiquette when encountering the smallest, fastest bird of the desert. This story starts with bird droppings. But before I go any further, if you have a penny and a quarter handy, please hold one of each in the palms of your hands while we embark on a treasure hunt. Tiny white bird droppings splashed onto a walkway that led to my front door in New Mexico. Each day, more splotches accrued on the same piece of blue flagstone. So, I looked up. About six feet above me, on a slim branch of a juniper tree, a broad-tailed hummingbird, her weight approximately the same as a penny, had crafted her nest, the size of a quarter, and maybe an inch deep. The material she chose included lichen, leaves, bark, and grasses interwoven with spider webs and lined with what looked like downy milkweed and feathers. Inside were two chicks, each about the size of one of my fingernails. As the birds grew, the nest stretched to accommodate them because it was purposely made pliable by the spider webs that also secured it to the branch. My drawing of these broad-tailed siblings shows them not long before they fledged, three weeks from the time they were born. Their beaks, which began as nubs, are almost full length. Their feathers, with only hints of the green iridescence that will deepen into maturity, have emerged from tiny hollow tubes of cartilage. I don't know if I ever saw those particular juveniles after they left the nest, but one day I was working on a drawing, magnifying glass in one hand, ink pen in the other, when I heard wing beats. So close, I could feel the air puff on my forehead. I held my breath, raised only my eyes and looked at the hummingbird looking at me. Face to face, we both seemed suspended in the heartbeat of the universe before the bird turned and flew out through the open door. Every time I have held a hummingbird, 
only out of necessity, has been due to the nest building of a large invasive species, humans. Another time, a broadtail flew into my studio. She bounced repeatedly against the window as I flew across the room saying, no, no, no. Landing on the wide sill, she fluttered between the glass and a painted wood cutout of two flamenco dancers. Her emerald wings winked at the edges of the woman's ruby skirt. I cupped the bird loosely in my hands, my fingers forming the bars of a cage. Quiet, she brushed the side of her beak along my finger. Eyes bright and dark, she looked at me. Didn't seem scared. Curious, I think. I wanted to ask her what she'd seen on her journeys. I wanted to invite her to stay and build a nest out of spider webs. What I wanted, though, wasn't the point. So I walked her to the open doorway and opened my hands. Last summer, I was standing outside my big studio window here in Tucson. My pink shirt was garnering inspection from a purple-headed Costa's hummingbird who poked me, and a male Anna's whose rosy red crown and glittering throat flashed as he swooped around me. Then I heard that heart-dropping impact of body slamming into glass, and I looked down to see another Anna's conked out on the ground. She looked perfect, but as time passed, she didn't move, didn't open her eyes. So I picked up her little body and held it in my hand. Please be okay. Please live, little one. I waited, standing in the sunlight. The bird was on its back, so vulnerable. Please. Tiny feet moved. Eyes opened. She lay there, then turned over so light on my palm. I felt her throb, filling all the air sacs in her body. And then this miraculous jewel of a creature flew up and zoomed through the cloudless blue sky. Throughout February, an exhibition of Beth Surtit's illustrated nature stories called The Art of Paying Attention is at the Tucson Botanical Gardens Porterhouse Gallery. There's a link for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>